morning, everybody. All right. So this is here today because I've always wanted a gigantic pulpit. No, I got... Um, today, we are going to be starting our series, uh, and it's not going to be a long series uh, for... For, uh, on purpose um, about the end times in the church. We've been talking about this really since the beginning of summer, um, and uh, how this this things works. This this works now. In twenty seven years of being a Christian, almost twenty eight now, uh, and twenty five years of active church ministry, I think I have taught on anything revolving end times and revelation once, um, on purpose. Because people get very animated about this. They get very aggravated about this because they know exactly what's going to happen when Jesus comes back because they saw it in a dream or something along those lines. And I, it's, I, I think the only time I've taught about anything I've taught about revelations, I think was the letters to the churches because that's easy. The rest of the book is just like, wow. It's like heffalumps and woozles. I mean, it's just, it's, it's crazy. There's so much, there's so many signs and things. Um, some of you know exactly what that is, you sinners. Anyway, and, um, so, so as we work through today's message, um, today's the introduction. Today is, uh, hopefully kind of setting the stage for why we're doing this. Um, but I want to encourage you about a few things to remember as we're walking through this. End times doctrine is not a doctrine that anyone can be sure of in any way. Okay. For a couple of different reasons. Jesus tells us that no one knows when this is going to happen. Not even him. The father's the only one that knows. So when we try to put a date on it, how many of you remember the book? I think it was 88 reasons Jesus is coming back in 88, right? Followed up by 89 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 89, right? Okay. How many of you remember a few years ago, the hill bop comet was coming? And that was Jesus coming to take his church. It was either that or a bunch of aliens coming to take some followers. It was one of the two. And then a few years after that, there was the guy who determined exactly when Jesus was going to come back. And he convinced tens of thousands of people around the world to rack up their credit cards, pull out their retirement, enjoy themselves. And I'm not kidding. They were standing out in a field waiting for it to happen. So he had billboards around the country predicting the date and all that stuff. Afterwards, there were some atheist groups that bought the same billboards and put over the, fr- the top of it. Well, that was awkward. <laughs> okay? This is not something that should be divisive within the church. This is what is referred to in theological circles. This is what's referred to as an in-house conversation. It's fun to debate. It's fun to talk about. But all end times theories about how things are going to happen in the end, they're all at best, best guesses. Some of them are wishful thinking, but they're all best guesses. And when I tell you there's a lot of them, there are a lot of them, a lot of them. And all of them have the same problems, and that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today. Um, None of the end times doctrines are salvation issues, okay? If you don't believe in premillennial dispensationalism, you can still go to heaven, Okay, just want to point that out. Some of you have no idea what I just said. It's okay, I'm going to explain it in a few minutes, okay? I think he just had a stroke. <laughs> I don't know what that was. So today what I want to do is I want to walk you through some of the basic terms used in end times conversations that are familiar to all of them. Uh, and I want to help lay a mental framework as to how we should be approaching this topic, okay? Um, I'm also going to walk you through the most popular view 
of end times doctrine. The, by far, the most popular view. And I'm going to very carefully and very lovingly, very caringly because I love you and you should love me and I don't want to hurt you and you should not want to hurt me when I'm done. Walk you through why it doesn't work. I'm going to walk you through where it came from. I'm going to walk you through how it started. I'm going to walk you through the different pieces. I want to show you how to find the problems. Now, if we end today and you still want to, you still believe that theory, I'm fine with that. I, it does, because at the end, it doesn't matter because everything I'm telling you today about that could be completely wrong because we don't know. We just don't know. This is my, 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 my own personal philosophy is I don't have an end times philosophy. When we get to the end, I'll know exactly what's going to happen. And I'm sure I'll go, huh, didn't see that coming. I used to have a very clear idea of end times because it was what I was always taught as a Christian going up to the church. And then I started doing something that Christians are just not supposed to do. Apparently I started reading the Bible for myself and studying the terms and looking at the history. And when I started seeing how difficult it was to make certain end times views happen, that's when I backed off and I said, I don't care about this. This is so weird and so all over the place that it's, it's very difficult to stitch these things together once you see how they're put together to the point where I realize I'm just going to trust Jesus that the end will come and I'll know it when it happens. The rest of it, I just want to stick with biblical authority because at the end of the day, that's really all that matters. So let's take a look at some of the terms that we use. And for those of you who think I'm over here playing beer pong, I'm not. Um, if you can see the cups, uh, these are just my little, uh, my little models here. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to talk about rapture. Everyone knows the rapture, right? That's when Jesus comes back from, for his church. Let's answer the, answer the obvious question. Do I believe in the rapture? Yes, I do. Absolutely. There's so much evidence for the rapture in, uh, in the scripture. We can't argue with that. Jesus is going to come for his church. The problem is when. That's the question. When and how. Second thing is the tribulation. Everyone knows the tribulation, right? Is the tribulation before or after or in the middle? Who cares? It's tribulation. I don't want to be there. But we might. So the tribulation is a period of hardship and suffering, usually talked about uh, by those, uh, usually talking about those who were left behind after the rapture of the church. Hence the books left behind. Remember the books and the movies, right? You were left behind. And we got post-trib, post-trib pre-trib, mid-trib, know, pork tribs, beef tribs. Oh, no, no, that's trib, not rib. I'm sorry. It's, it's really getting hungry. So second coming. Everyone knows the second coming, right? So you got Jesus coming for his church. But does he come here, 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 or somewhere way over here? We don't know. We know he's coming. But we don't know when because the Bible doesn't tell us. And when the disciples asked Jesus, can you tell us when you're coming back? He said, no, I can't because I don't know. 
And we have this thing called the 70-week vision. This is going to become very important later. This is in the book of Daniel. And it's broken up into three, spot, three parts. I'll explain to you what this means later. It's this, this first seven weeks, the 62 weeks in the middle, and then the one week at the end. This is very, very important to all end times, uh, end times doctrines. I'm going to tell you why it shouldn't be in a second. The millennial reign. How many of you are familiar with the millennial reign? The millennial reign is found in one section of scripture. It's Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. It's not found anywhere else in scripture. And it's in the middle of this really weird section. We don't know when it's going to happen, but we know it's going to happen. At some point in time, there will be a thousand-year reign on earth where the devil is bound. But is it here, 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 here? Did it already happen, or is it going to happen? I don't know. It's at the end of the book. Maybe it's at the end of the end of time. I don't know. How about this one? The great falling away. Great falling away speaks of the time towards the end. In Second Thessalonians, I think it's chapter two, Paul says these two things must happen before the end will come. The great falling away, and that's talking about the church no longer functioning as the church, and the revealing of the man of sin, which we're not going to get into uh, in this series because it's a, that's a topic all by itself that needs its own series. Um, but we know that the church is going to fall away before the end happens, before the end end. But is it is it is it the, the middle end? Is it the end of this? Is it the end of this? Is it before this? Is it before this? Um, or is it before this? Is anyone starting to see the problems here? Okay. And then there's my favorite one. This is what we're going to be talking about today. This is the big $10 word. Premillennial dispensationalism. Try to use that word at parties. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Everyone loves trying to say that 10 times really fast. So this is the most commonly known and popular view of end times amongst Christians today. But there are also several variations within this group. Premillennial, or what I'll just call for now, millennial dispensationalism means that before the millennial reign, Jesus will return for his church. There will be a seven-year period of tribulation. How many of you are familiar with that? The seven-year tribulation? You all are like asleep. I don't know where he's going. I'm not raising my hand. It's going to be on camera and people are going to know. So there's a seven-year period of tribulation. And after the seven-year period of tribulation, Jesus returns again and that starts the millennial reign. That's essentially a very basic view of dispensationalism. Now, premillennium means that all this happens before the millennial reign. But you also have mid-millennium. Then you have post-millennium. And then there's, of course, the Millennium Falcon, which is awesome. Um, so... So you guys are taking this way too seriously. You're like, I don't know what's happening. This is, this is crazy. Um, so let's, these are just the basic terms. So let's look at how this, this thing, cause this is what we're going to focus on, this premillennial dispensationalism, where this thing came from, why, why it matters to us, and what are we, what are we going to do with it, and what is this person going to do? What is this, what is this crazy pastor going to do with this thing? All right. So this is the view that I held for a very long time, probably the first 10 years of my, of my walk with the Lord. I held this view, never questioned it. It was taught in every church that I ever went to. How many of you are familiar with this? 
You know, we should all be familiar with this. It's very, very pro- prominent in the North Country. There are tons of books written on this. There's movies made about this. There are seminars about this. Seminaries teach this. Dallas Theological Seminary teaches only this view. Well, pastor, that's pretty cheeky that you don't believe that view. Yeah, I know. I've been accused of that before. It's okay. But because this is what I mean. This might be right. But personally, I don't think it is for one very specific reason that we're going to get to in a few moments. Now, I don't have, like I said, I don't have a personally defined view about the end times, but what I do believe I'll share with you at the end, at the end of this message. Uh, I'm going to share with you what I believe is the most important thing we need to know about the end times. So, while this is the most popular view, let's remember that it's not the only view, okay? We can't just decide that because we like this one, no other ones exist. It is not the only view. But I want to show you how important critical thinking is when it comes to your faith and the fact that you, anything like this, you should never just agree with something that comes from a pulpit, including this one. Okay? You should never just blindly agree with anything that comes from a pulpit, and that includes this one. You should look, research, and come to your own decision because at the end of the day, you have to stand before God and give an account for your faith. You don't stand before God and give an account for what I've taught you or what any other ministers taught you. You have to own your faith. And this particular topic tends to be very divisive, and it shouldn't be. This should be unifying. We can have fun talking about it, and we can have a lot of different, 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 uh, different views, and that is okay. But what premillennial dispensationalism is going to teach us, basically, is this, that there is going to be the rapture of the church, and there's a time of tribulation. The problem is, I'm going to get these wrong, Does the rapture of the church happen in the middle, at the end, or at the beginning? That's the argument. That's where the big division within this particular view comes. And it's not a small division. (laughs) People get really worked up about this for something that we're told by Jesus himself will never get right. I mean, you've got a 33% chance of, 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 of getting it right if the rapture happens before it happens in conjunction with the tribulation in any way. If those things are actually there. Then you have the tribulation and then you have the, the second second coming. Because the first second coming is Jesus rapturing his church. Then there's a second second coming when Jesus comes back for the millennial reign. This is essentially what this theory teaches now the obvious question as a whole should be is this viewpoint found anywhere in scripture as a whole no it's not is that a problem no it's not because there's no other view of end times that's found anywhere in scripture as a whole because god has a tendency of revealing things to us in pieces which is annoying Okay, it's just annoying, but it's the way he works. It's a, it's a theological process called progressive revelation. We get what we can handle at the time. We have the fullness of his work. We call it the Bible. So we have it, but at some point we've got to try to stitch together an idea of what we think is going to happen towards the end. And we're taking it from all over the Bible. I don't have a problem with that. The only time I have a problem is when you have to do theological gymnastics to make something happen. 
When you've got to stretch yourself in a way you shouldn't stretch, you're going to utilize scripture in a way it shouldn't be utilized. That's where I start to have difficulties. Or when we start to create situations that should work because this should work because this is what I believe. And because I believe it, this is what should happen. So where did this theory come from? If this is not found anywhere whole in the Bible, where did this theory come from? Because this is what, and and when I say the most popular, I'm talking like 90% of the church agrees with this. Okay? 90% of the church agrees with this. So where does this come from? Was it the left behind books? No. Was it the obvious biblical evidence? No. Um, Did the early church believe this? I mean, is this something the first century church has just believed for the last 2,000 years? No. This is one of the newest of all end times theories. One of the newest. The two people that made it the most popular are Cyrus Schofield and Dwight Moody, D.L. Moody. So how many of you ever heard of the Schofield Study Bible? The Schofield Study Bible has only one version of end times doctrine in it, and that's this one. Now, the, the problem is Schofield and Moody did not make up this theory. They actually had it handed to them by this man, John Nelson Darby, who was a good Scottish minister. He came up with this theory around 1827 when he was uh, uh, preparing. From the way the story goes, there's a few different versions. Was He was doing some revival meetings, and this kind of came to him that God would not allow his church to exist in the tribulation so that the God would have to have removed his church. So basically he goes to First Thessalonians uh, and, and looks at the passage where it says we will be caught up with him in the clouds. When he returns, boom, this idea comes to him, and then he puts together the rest of this view. And then he, he went to America, he connected with, uh, with um, Schofield and Moody, gave it to them, and they were like, we like this. We like this. We're going to put this in our books. Moody taught it in the seminaries. Schofield taught it everywhere they went. It became the dominant view of end times theory because it was the only one being taught. So the Schofield Study Bible was originally, originally released in 1909. It was one of the most popular study Bibles for like 80 years. It's still extremely popular today. But the thing that I try to tell people as often as I can is to remember that the notes in your study Bible are not scripture. They're not the words of Christ. They're the views of the person translating that particular section of text. It's their personal views. Sometimes it's a, it's a commentary, but very rarely are the study notes in your Bible written by theologians. They're almost always written by translators or taken from someone's other commentary work. They're very rarely theologically based. That doesn't mean they're bad. You don't have to be a theologian with a PhD to have good thoughts about Scripture. But we have to know that, and we have to do more research than just those little notes at the bottom of our Bible. So this view has been taught in our seminaries for over 100 years. It was one of the only views uh, preached through the Baptist churches, Southern Baptist Convention. When you have that many people teaching one thing, it becomes standard doctrine. We shouldn't be surprised about that. And that doesn't mean that by itself that it's bad. The question is, does it work? And that's what I want to examine. So the first thing we want to look at is... This rapturing of the church and what has to happen before that, that the world is supposed to get really bad, right? Before the rapture of the church, the world is supposed to get really bad. Now, not, don't confuse that with the great falling away of the church. The great falling away of the church is the church. 
this begins with the world getting bad, not the church getting bad. Do you understand what I'm saying? So it's going to get really bad for Christians before the rapture. <laughs> Just curious. Anyone know anything about that little time period known as the dark ages, where when if you believed in salvation by grace through faith, you were burned? <laughs> now I'm going to go out on a limb and say it was pretty bad for Christians at that time. Uh, or that, that, that pesky little first century thing where people were fed to lions, fed to pigs, fed to dogs, alive, killed for sport, literally hunted. I'm just saying, I think it was pretty bad. How bad does it gotta get? During World War II, nine million Jews were killed. How bad does it gotta get? Today, in different parts of the world, you got North Korea, you got the Sudan, you got some parts of South America, you got some parts of the United States where Christians are still openly persecuted. North Korea, China, where you can be killed for your faith. As Americans, one of the things we have to remember is that we don't understand what getting bad is. We think a poor Wi-Fi signal is like some sort of persecution. You know, what do you mean I don't have 5G up here yet? I don't know why I live in this country. Okay. Now, persecution has been around since the, since the church started, and it is still alive and well today. So let's remember that, okay? So the second thing is that Jesus returns to rapture his church. That's here. So the rapture of the church. This is the, this is the, the, the standard view that Jesus comes before the tribulation to take his church. This is the, the most common view, and this is why we'll deal with this. This passage... The passage used to justify this is 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18. And it reads like this. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. This is obviously talking about the return of Christ, right? And this is obviously talking about us. Something's happening. Something's going on. But does the passage allow itself to be used as what's going to happen when Jesus returns? Or is Paul talking about something different? And now, there are two distinct views on this passage. You've already heard one. I'm going to share with you the other one. You get to decide where you fall. Because it could easily go either way. Personally, I don't believe this is talking about end times. I don't see this being a prophetic statement. And I'll explain to you why. Here, Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonians. First Thessalonians was the first book written in the New Testament. It's Paul's earliest book. So he's writing to the church. And one of the things that's happening in the church in Thessalonica is that they believe that the people who died are going to miss the second coming of Christ. That somehow they're going to miss it. They're not going to be with us in heaven because they were told that the resurrection wasn't real. There was a lot of problems in here. So Paul is trying to comfort the church at the end. And if you read the whole section about this, we got to remember, this is a letter. So listen to what Paul says in context of the whole thing. And then you decide for yourself if you think this is prophecy or words of comfort to a church that is hurting. Okay? Starting in verse 13. <laughs> I could take my glasses off. It says, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. 
lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who slept in Jesus. They're coming back too. For this way, uh, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then those who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall be together uh, uh, with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. That's really hard to turn that into prophecy. It's really hard to turn that into prophecy when you know why Paul's writing it. The problem is all end time views, and I mean all of them do this. You take a section of scripture that seems to back up what you want it to believe and you pull it out and you put it somewhere so that it fits. But that's not, you can't do that to scripture. You can't just pick and choose the verses that you want. You have to look at it as a whole. And in, in, in my opinion, and in a lot, of, a lot of other theologians agree the same way, this is not prophetic. This is comfort. Now, the thing we have to remember is there's so many other places in, in, in the New Testament where you can find the rapture. We don't need this. Now, you can apply this to when Jesus comes back, we will be with him, and so will all who have died ahead of us. It plainly states that. But what it doesn't do is allow us to take Jesus returning for his people and place it in front of a period of persecution. Because it's not there. Did anyone see any mention of a tribulation time period in that section at all? No. So we're literally taking it out and we're applying it at the beginning of something that we want to exist. This is difficult theology. But like I said before, God has a tendency of giving us things in pieces. So doing this isn't bad as long as the verses allow for it. But we can't take the Bible and bend it to our will to make it say something it's not saying. Do you understand? So let's be really clear. Is a rapture going to happen? Yes. Does it happen here? We don't know. Because we're not told. And there are other problems with that, which we're going to get to here. The other issue with this is that we've placed the rapture and then we've put this section of tribulation in here, the seven-year tribulation. So let me ask a question. Can anyone tell me where in the Bible, anywhere, where it says that we will go through a seven-year period of tribulation? No, you can't, because it is not in the Bible anywhere, anywhere. So we have to ask the question, where does the seven years come from? Okay, where does the seven years come from? And it comes from Daniel chapter, 29, uh, chapter 9, verses 23 through 27, and it's the 70-week vision, okay? So we've got this 70-week vision broken up into three parts. And what ends up happening, and I'm going to read this whole thing to you, and then you decide for yourself whether or not this is 
a good treatment of Scripture or a bad treatment of Scripture? Because what ends up happening is you take this section and you take your theological knife and we cut this last week off and we put it here. Okay? That's where the seven years comes from. So I'm going to read this prophecy to you, and then I want you to decide. I want you to just please keep an open mind, because I know I'm stepping on some toes, but it's okay. Sometimes our toes need to be stepped on. And you tell me if this works, okay? You tell me if this works. It's Daniel chapter, chapter 9, verses uh, 23 through 27. It says, and at the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved, therefore consider the matter and understand the vision. Says so the angel of the Lord speaking to Daniel, consider the matter and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. Now, before I continue, the seventy weeks, there's a, there's a process in the, in the Old Testament when you're dealing with prophecy. It's called the day-year theory. So you take a day given in prophecy, and it typically becomes a year in real time. Now, this is well-established, and it is not disputed by anyone. And we'll, hopefully you'll see why here in just a second, so you understand what we're talking about. So we're not talking about 70 literal weeks. We're talking about 490 years. It says, for your people and for your holy city, to finish the transgression and to make an end to sins. Did you hear that? To finish transgressions and to make an end to sin. This is what the prophecy is talking about. To make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and anoint anoint the most holy. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus, isn't it? So this entire 70-week vision is leading up to Jesus. We we can see that pretty plainly. It's going to become even more clear when we get to the end. It says, now therefore... Know, therefore, and understand from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. There's a time marker right there. Until Messiah, the prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So 69 of the 70 weeks are before Jesus. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times, even in times of persecution, we're going to rebuild my city. It says, and after the 62 weeks, so that's the second time period, the Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the, uh, the end it shall be with the flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. This is the key verse, verse 27. Then he, capital H, shall confirm a covenant. With many for one week, one seven year period. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So the prophecy breaks down like this 70 weeks, uh, seven weeks, 49 years, 62 weeks, 434 years, one week, seven years. So remember, for the tribulation period, the, seventh, the 70th week is pulled off and taken and placed, and the tribulation is placed in that week in some future time period. Okay? So we know, and we can tell from the time that the decree went out to rebuild Jerusalem, it was 49 years the Israelites were released. We know that perfect, awesome. 
We also know from that time, the 434 years, at that time, Jesus was baptized. Perfect. So now, what is Jesus doing on his earthly ministry? And how long did that earthly ministry last? He is confirming the new covenant with people for three and a half years. How many is in a week? Seven. What's half of a week? Three and a half. What happens at the end, at the middle of that week, at the three and a half week? He, the Messiah, brings an end to sacrifice and offering. What did Jesus do on the cross? He brought an end to sacrifice and offering. We can see this entire vision play out in the life of Israel and the life of, in the life of Christ. Now, can anyone tell me what happened three and a half years after Jesus rose to heaven? This is a trick question. It was the stoning of Stephen. Exactly three and a half years later. At that moment, the stoning of Stephen is a marked event because at that moment, the gospel left Jerusalem and went all over the world because Christians in Jerusalem were scared out of their mind. They left and took the gospel everywhere. They're called the diaspora or the diaspora, depending on who you're talking to. So anyone who ever talks about diaspora Christians, that's what they're talking about. The church in Antioch was created that way. Churches all over uh, the Middle East were created that way. 70 weeks. At the end of the 70 weeks, the gospel went out to the Gentile nations in an uncontrollable way. Isn't that amazing? And in the middle of that 70th week, Jesus put an end to a sacrifice and offering. So here's the problem. The reason why people take this is because the Messiah will be cut off. The Messiah will be cut off. So see, the Messiah was cut off. So there's a time, and, and verse 26 talks about persecution. It talks about a time of suffering. It talks about a time of difficulty. No one argues that. The problem is, can you take this and move it over here just arbitrarily? You can't for two reasons. One, if you do, if in the middle of this week, the Messiah is to make an end to sacrifice and offering, guess what? Jesus isn't the Messiah because that's way up here now. Does anyone see a problem with that? I personally have a problem with that because building a bronze altar in the middle of the sanctuary so we can sacrifice bulls and goats is not something I'm interested in doing. This has to stay right where it is. And even if we do move it here, you only get three and a half years. So let's take the first three and a half years and give those to Jesus, put them back in the first century. Even if you do that and you move it back here, the tribulation is only three and a half years now. This becomes a problem. So now you got to ask the question, where did the tribulation come from? The tribulation only comes from two places in scripture, Matthew 24 and Luke uh, uh, 24, 25 and Luke chapter 21. I want to read this to you. You tell me what this is talking about. I'm only going to read you a little bit of it. It says that Jesus went out and departed from the temple and his disciples came up to show him uh, the building of the temple. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, assuredly, I say to you, not one stone will stand, uh, shall be left upon another. 
that shall not be thrown down. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. He does this in both accounts. Everything I'm reading to you is, is visible in both accounts. Now he sat on the Mount of Olives and the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming of the end of the age. I love this because he doesn't answer them. It says, and Jesus answered them and said, take heed that no one deceives you. <laughs> He's great at deflecting. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and, and will deceive many. And you will hear of uh, wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Now, I want you to realize that everything that he just said above there were things that the disciples were going to hear themselves. See to it that you are not deceived. These things will happen. Keep, keep that in mind because that's going to be important in a minute. It says, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines, pestilence, earthquakes in various places. All, uh, all these are the beginning of sorrows. And this is where it comes from. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. This is bad. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will be betrayed, uh, will betray one another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Generally not cool. Not a great section. Uh, this is not what I want to live through. Right? But this is where the tribulation comes from. It's obvious that we can see a period of tribulation for God's people in there. And it's obvious that in verse 26 in Daniel, we also see a period of tribulation when Messiah is cut off. That's why this happens, because it seems to fit. But as I already showed you, if we do this, then Jesus isn't the Messiah. The Messiah has yet to come, and the Messiah will come at some point in time during this tribulation period. That's a problem. It's also a problem for one big reason. And this is the words of Jesus himself. Please hear this because this is not something that is taught often. This is very difficult to think about. And what I'm going to share you with can be off-putting, especially because we've been taught the same thing for so long. This is a very different way of looking at this. Okay? So please understand, I'm not trying to discount anyone's belief, but I want you to be aware of what you're dealing with the other problem with that is in both of the tribulation accounts they end with this statement assuredly i say to you this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place that's jesus speaking this generation now what some people want to do is they want to take generation and turn it into a people so this people, my Gentiles, the people who are converted to me, will by no means pass away. The Gentile nation, the church, will by no means pass away. The problem is the language doesn't allow you to do it. There are rules when it comes to translation. And the problem is doing that doesn't happen in that section. You can't do it. It only means what it says. This generation, these people who are alive today will not die until these things happen. And what are the things that happen? Being hunted and killed for Christ's name, being persecuted at a level they never understood before, and the destruction of Jerusalem. Anyone know what happened in AD 70? The destruction of Jerusalem. Same generation, same people. Their eyes witnessed the judgment of God. It makes me think back to the words of Jesus, or the words of the Jewish people at Jesus' trial, let his blood be on us and on our children. 
it was the same generation of people. And if you read uh, the writings of Josephus about the seas of Jerusalem, it is one of the most disgusting and horrific scenes in military history throughout all time. It was beyond disgusting. Some of the things that they talked about were wading ankle deep in blood in the streets. It's how bad it was. I'm not going to talk to you about what, what happens. But, the, but this is the other problem. Even if we allow this 70th week to be taken here, the Bible tells us that the tribulation has already started. It's already started. We're not waiting for this week to happen, for the tribulation to get here. It's already here. My opinion. Okay? Please, please. I, I'm hoping that I'm being kind when I, when I put this out. But when I read through scripture, I'm not looking for something in the distant future. I'm in it today with the persecution we see in the church around the world, the growing persecution here in this country. Can we honestly say to a North Korean Christian, it's okay, eventually it'll get bad enough for Jesus to show up? I can't rightfully do that. But this period of tribulation, the seven years, it's not in the Bible. We put it in the Bible by stealing from other sections of Scripture to fit something that we don't want to admit that we're in into some future time period. It's not there. We're not waiting for the end days. We're in the end days. Next week, we're going to talk about the more significant part of this discussion, which is how the church, what the church should be looking for within itself. But let me take you to Acts chapter 2, and I want to read you from the words of Peter, proof that the end days started at Pentecost. Okay? Acts chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. This is... Peter's beginning of his his message to the people that were standing there. Listen to what he says, because we gloss over this all the time. Peter says, but this is, is, is that a conditional statement that this could be, this might be, this may be at some point in time? Is Peter being direct and emphatic? Yes, he is. This is is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now listen to this. It says, And it shall come to pass that in the last days, God will, uh, that, uh, uh, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dreams, dream dreams. When Peter says that, he's saying this is the beginning of the end days. The end days begin now. Because this is what was written by the prophet Joel, that in the last days, this will happen. And it started then. Now you might be thinking, 2,000 years of end days? Seriously? 2,000 years of end days? When, when is God going to have enough? But I want you to make sure, I want you to remember something. God waited 4,000 years 
from the sin in the garden to the time of Jesus. God is very patient. And myself, I'm very thankful that God is patient because if God had not waited, I would not be here to receive his grace. I'm very thankful that God has tarried until he returns for his church because he will return. And when he does return, it gets bad. It gets bad. Peter's not telling us to look for these things in the distance. He's not telling us to be careful because eventually things will come. Constantly throughout the New Testament, we're warned to be aware of false teachers in the end days. We think that that's going to be some distant thing. But Paul is constantly talking about false teachers in their midst. We're warned about false Christs. There were false Christs back then. Guess what? There are people today who claim to be Jesus. There was an African pastor who claimed to be Jesus, and to prove it, he buried himself for three days. Turns out he wasn't Jesus. When they dug him up, they just left him there. Convenient. This is not an uncommon thing. This is happening right in front of us. The thing that I'm waiting, that the, the, and the reason why I believe that we are, well, what I believe we need to be waiting for. We're going to take this out. We're going to take this out. We know that this is true. We know that this was Christ. Can't take Jesus out of that week. We know that the rapture of the church is coming. We know that Jesus is going to return. And we know that there will be a millennial reign. This is what I believe we need to be aware of. The great falling away. Of all end times conversations, there's only one part of it that we have any, uh, one area that we have a part to play, and that's this one. We can't control any of the rest of it because it's prophecy. God decides. But we can decide if we're part of this or not, if we're part of the falling away or not. It's the only thing we have control over, and we're constantly warned as a church as a New Testament church, to be on the lookout for this. I believe this is where we are today. I think we are closer to this than we have ever been in history. Because the falling away of the church is happening right before our eyes in huge ways. And whenever I go someplace, whenever I talk to people about false teachers in the church, I'm continually ridiculed. And told that I'm just jealous of someone else's ministry. That I don't, I don't like it because their church is bigger or whatever. They never have a rational discussion about what these people are teaching. But this is the only thing we have control over. The great falling away of the church. This is what we're going to start talking about next week. But what I wanted to show you today. Is how difficult it is to make these things happen. If we lock ourselves into an end times doctrine, if we take an end times doctrine and we draw a line in the sand that this is what I believe, all we've done is created two sides. Whenever you draw a line, you create two sides. But at the end of the day, here's what I believe Jesus wants us to know about the end times. The church is going to fall away. He is going to return. The church is going to be raptured. And at that moment... There are two types of people. There are those who are saved, who are ushered into heaven, 
And there are those who are not saved. And they're ushered to judgment. This is my one and only end times view. The rest of it, it's like mental monopoly. It's just a game because we don't know. So as Christians, let's, I'm hoping we can do one thing. We can agree that the end will come and we can agree that we don't know how. We can have ideas, we can have views. Run with it, go ahead. I recommend people, people read like Jimmy Evans' Tipping Point book. I don't agree with it, but read it. It might, it might appeal to you. You're not gonna break my heart. I'm going to be attaching Greg Laurie's uh, series on Revelation to our church website. Watch it. You're not going to break my heart. I think you should. These are smart men. They have reasons why they believe what they believe. But at the end of the day, the Bible tells us one thing. We're all wrong. If you have a rock rib view, if you think you know exactly what's going to happen at the end times, you're wrong. They all have holes of it. What I did today to the most popular view can be done to all of them. All of them. They all do the same things. They all make the same mistakes of mixing and matching and switching scriptural views. All of them have problems. The only thing that I know that doesn't have problems is that the church is in trouble. Jesus is going to return. We're going to go to him and we're either in good standing or bad standing. If we can combine, if we can come together on that, then we can do exactly what Jesus told us to do. Take the gospel to the nations, preach to the lost, and don't get caught up in idle conversations that go nowhere 